Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Then Again, brought to you by the Northeast Georgia History Center. My name is Leslie Jones, and I'm the Archives and Collections Manager at the Northeast Georgia History Center. And today I have a very, very special guest I'll try not to fangirl too much about, Dr. Lewis Kaplan. Could you introduce yourself and what you do? Oh, thank you, Leslie. Uh, My name is uh, Lewis Kaplan. Uh, My formal title is Professor of History and Theory of Photography and New Media at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for being here and agreeing to be with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Always, always a great time to talk about spirit photography, particularly when October rolls around. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking on the same page. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about spirit photography. I know what it is and obviously you know what it is, but could you tell our audience what it is? Well, uh, spirit photography uh, is something that was developed, pun intended, in the 1860s by a gentleman from Boston named William Mumler. But there were many practitioners uh, in that era. And the idea was that the photographic camera could capture the spirits of the dead. And so, you know, that's very supernatural sounding from the start. But you have to understand that this was in the context of a, of a religious movement called spiritualism. So in order to understand the history of spirit photography, we also have to understand the history of spiritualism. Right, right. And for those of you who know me and have listened to any podcast or episode that I do, I always talk about spiritualism since it's my thing. But for those who don't know, it's basically people talking to the dead. But mostly in the Victorian period, they were talking to their loved ones. It wasn't anything like the exorcist. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so, yeah. So let's tie that together now. Right. So we have this uh, religious uh, belief system called spiritualism that believed that not only that, well, it works both ways. Right. Communication. It's not only that people could get in touch with the dearly departed, but the, the, the idea was that spirits could communicate with people. Right. The spirits of the dead could come back. And this, of course, happened primarily starting in the 1848 with the Fox sisters. Uh, and then into the 1850s and 60s through seances. So the idea would be then that spirit mediums could channel the the voices uh, of the dearly departed to come back and and give messages and give comfort to the living. And so that's why we really need to understand and see spirit photography as a as a vis- as the extension of this desire and of this practice into the visual realm, right? So we're moving, in a sense, from the spirit communication uh, via uh, mediums uh, that through a kind of, you know, the voice and sound and now moving into uh, the visual. And that's really where we can understand uh, the birth of spirit photography in 1862. Right. And then in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was more than you just couldn't say, I feel a presence. They wanted visual proof. Right. Something there. So I think that also helped with spirit photography, get it going and make. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And let's remember, right. Photography, the let's give a little bit of photo history background here. Right. That photography was a medium that was only invented. The red letter date is 1839. Right. So we're talking here of spirit photography coming into the world about one generation after And photography was turned to from the very beginning as providing proof, right, as providing evidence, as being this thing, this amazing new technology that could reproduce reality. 
And so, you know, we obviously are photoshoppers and we have a very, uh, you know, doubtful and skeptical view of, of images and their truth value and their truth claims. But at that time, right, the idea was if you have a photographic image, then it must be the case. It must be the facts. And so you could say that those who were engaged in spirit photography were really riding on that attitude in order to con be convincing to people that they were showing off the spirits of the dead. Right. And, and it goes to show that photography was so important, not just the technology, but through that spiritual aspect. Mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons i love spirit photography is just seeing i can't imagine at that day and age seeing someone that had passed away on your photo just right in mind right right and of course the other thing to remember leslie is that in terms of there are other there are other genres and other practices in the history of photography at the time that are allied to spirit photography really? particularly memento mori right the idea was that it you know when we have here it was very common particularly because of the high infant mortality rates at that, at that time, to take images of uh, the child who had just passed away, you know, a kind of a death portrait, right? A, a memento mori, literally a memory of the dead. And to, you know, have that might be the only photograph that, uh, that a parent would have as a keepsake, right? And so, you, again, you could say that, that the spirit photograph is an extension of that idea, and the key to remember here, right, and I think you've touched upon it already, is that you you need to understand spirit photography in relationship to grief and mourning, right? It's all about the ways in which it can console people in order to deal with death. And um, the many cases that we have in relationship to William Mumler's photography, and I know you want us to talk about, and maybe we'll get into that a little later, uh, the case of the most famous Mumler photograph of Mary Todd Lincoln and the ghost of President Abraham Lincoln is all wrapped up in, in this whole idea of providing consolation to uh, those who are in mourning after the deaths of, of their loved ones. And what they call, what Freud called in German, Dorcharbeiten, right? Working through uh, the grief and spirit photography, the spirit photograph became uh, a help in, in that regard. So it's serving very important psychological functions um, in that era. As spiritualism does. Absolutely. As spiritualism. Absolutely. So I think we definitely should get into the, I guess, creator, if we want to say that, of yes. photography. Who was William Mumler? Well, when you say creator, I, I must pause there because I always say, you know, depending on your position, right, did William Mumler discover spirit photography or did William Mumler invent spirit photography or, you know, what it all, yeah. all of course, it, dep it depends what your position is, right, and in terms of whether this was a complete fabrication or whether this was a scientific discovery, right, whether you're Very a skeptic. Right. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer on the issue in terms of what you're going to call him. But everyone agrees. And, you know, in terms of uh, history, that William Mumler was born in 1832 and his uh, first profession in, in the Boston area uh, was as a jewelry engraver. Right. That's where he got it right. He didn't start out as a photographer. He was a jewelry engraver in a successful uh, company uh, called uh, Bigelow and Canard. 
And um, you could say that he was a hobbyist, right? In terms of starting to get into photography, you know, circa 1860 or 61, you know, right around the time, the beginning of the Civil War. And he worked in the studios of a Mrs. Helen F. Stewart, or that, that's where, you know, he, he did his work uh, in, in learning about the craft. Some say he might have even taken lessons with her. And um, one day, and, and we, I think we dated to the summer of 1862, probably in August, he developed a picture where there was, that they called the, at, the, at, at that time, a spirit extra, right? And that was one of the, one of the terms that they used. And, and he was like, whom? Well, how did, how did this happen? What, what's going on here? And at first, you know, Mumbler was a bit skeptical, right? about it and said, well, maybe it was just a mistake, right? Maybe it was just some kind of technical error. Maybe, you know, there was this image, this latent image that was left over from a previous uh, sitting on my glass plate, you know, and, 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 that, and that's the way I should account for it. But, you know, again, then now the story gets interesting, right? Because there were spiritualists in that environment who saw this and got Mumler around to thinking that, no, it wasn't just something technical. It actually was a new spiritualist discovery that he had made that, that somehow he had revealed to us here the spirit of his dead cousin, right? He said, then he started to say, hey, wait a minute, this, is, this one looks like, this image looks like my dear dead cousin who died like 10 years ago, and she must be coming back to, to, to give me messages. Excuse me? It has to be. It has to be. It has to be, right. So, so it's interesting because then the story really turned, right? Because it, there was a way in which Mumler started as a skeptic, but then, you know, he started to, to buy into it. And of course, if you want to be cynical about it, right, you could say, oh, well, Mumbler saw an amazing, you know, money making opportunity here in order to, you know, to, 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 to find a, a, a new line of work. And he ran with it. Right. And let's not forget, Leslie, right, that in order to, to, to have a spirit photograph made, make, made for yourself, right, to come into Mumbler Studio, it wasn't cheap, right? right? I mean, he charged ten dollars, right? Oh. For a yeah, ten dollars, and you know what the value of of was of ten dollars in those days? It's crazy, lot of money, right? So there was really a class thing going on where where you really needed to be either a celebrity or you needed to be, and that's why there are so many celebrities that sat for Mumler. We can talk about some of them, right? In in the American cultural and political scene of that day, right? In order, in order to have your 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 photo taken, but you know, but people, you know, uh, would be willing, right, to give up uh, to to pay out of pocket if they could really, you know, be in the presence of this new technological miracle, right? And, and if they truly believed it, then Absolutely. of course they would spend as much money as possible to see their loved one, right? So absolutely, absolutely. I didn't know that William Mumler wasn't a spiritualist. I just assumed that he he found spirit photography. He, he, again, if you read his 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 autobiography, the personal experiences of William Mumler, initially, no. But then he says that he became converted and he came became and he came around to it because there was no other way that he could explain what was the results of his of, of his craft. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and this Dr. Gardner, 
right, was really the was really the one of the the key players um, who convinced Mumler and then started to become almost like a spokesman for him and to spread the word. So so and to spread the the, the, the images, right? So the stories and the and the images started to get published in spiritualist newspapers like the Banner of Light in Boston, like the Herald of Progress in New York. And that really, again, right, once once the word is out, all, all press is good press. People started, you know, not flocking to his door. And um, he basically said, well, like what I thought was just a sidelight now became my own profession in, 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 in full. And he became a full time spirit photographer. So I think going on to that and how he he started doing it all the time. Yeah. Um, so could you explain to everyone what a double negative is like how it was made? How did he do it? OK, so now you want me to put on the skeptics cap, right? Yes, all right. Well, you know, it's it, I, I, I want to give you a direct quote, right, because I don't I want to talk about it in terms of the trial. Right. So when, when we're jumping ahead now. So when Mumler went on trial and now we're going to talk about some of the celebrities involved because it's, you know, a very uh, sensationalist event in New York in 1869. The prosecutor uh, who was named Elbridge Gary, he proposed at uh, the trial that there were nine distinct methods that one could use in order to produce a spirit photograph by purely mechanical means, right? That in other words, you didn't need to say it was divine intervention, right? And the first, and the first one that he brought into evidence at the trial is what you're talking about, which is the process by a positive in the slide, right? So the first method they thought could be could be the way that he did it was a glass plate containing a previously prepared positive is placed in the plate holder in front of the sensitive plate so that the image on the glass will be taken with that of the sitter at the same time, right? The distance between the plates varies the size and the distinctness of the form. So that was, you know, considered to be the most common or easiest way um, in which he could do it, right? So it's basically, you know, this this double this double neg this double negative, you know, which comes out of a previously prepared positive, right? Okay, but there are other theories, right? And uh, and 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 one of those theories is this idea, and this is very interesting to think about, right? that spirit photography is also allied to stage magic, right? So that, right, and, and, and that's the history we can trace, right? And so there is also the view that Mumler was, was, all, was, was a master of leisure domain, right? Of, of sleight of hand. And that therefore, and, it was, and there was always, uh, people talk about how he would wave his hands, right? In front of the camera. Like a magician, right? That that like like you know like a like he was you know invoking the spirits and you know and 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 doing that kind of 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 uh, you know also you might say distraction for those who were looking at him, right? And so some people believe that that as a sleight of hand artist, he was able to slip in a kind of microscopic picture of the spirit and drop it in. And this is number three uh, on the list here that I'll read to you from Elbridge Gary's list where he says that what Mumler may have done was this. 
a microscopic picture of the spirit form can be inserted in the camera box alongside of the lens in one of the screw holes. And by a small magnifying glass, its image can be thrown on the sensitive plate with that of the sitter. So if people would observe the, the glass plate negative and to see that it was clean, right? Then Mumler still could like, you know, have like a, you know, a, a, a special compartment where he could slip in the microscopic spirit and then have it be, and then through the mirrors, you know, have it be thrown onto the image that he actually was taking. So that's another more devious way of thinking about how Mumler did the trick. Honestly, kind of genius, though, if you think about it. <laughs> I mean, no wonder he was so popular if that's something that he did, because that, that's amazing. Yeah, well, again, there are, many, there are many theories, you know, about how Mumler did it, right? There's also, even the first, I mentioned this in my book, that the first, you know, history of photography textbook that gave Mumler his place and his due was Robert Hirsch's Seizing the Light. And Robert Hirsch has this theory, and other people as well, that Mumbler, um, this is crazy, that Mumbler managed somehow to get access to actual photographs of sitters, you know, that, that like, like almost like a, like a burglar, right? Going into people's houses, rifling through, getting these photos, bringing them back, and then, you know, using them as the basis for sleight of hand that, that we talked about before. And that that's the way he, people would recognize, right? Because the question is, how do people recognize these images, right? If, right? So, so there's, there's two theories. One is, well, if it, was a, if, if, if it was done through this kind of thievery, well, obviously that's how they recognize it because they were based on pictures that they themselves owned, right? But another uh, theory, and I mean, you've seen spirit photographs, right? Some spirit photographs, the, 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 the uh, countenances, the faces are distinct, but in others, they're quite hazy and blurry. Right. And then if that's the case, well, then the, the theory is that all Mumbler needed to do was to draw out the information. And here, of course, Hannah Mumbler was an assistant and helped with this. Right. To draw out, OK, the, the person that you want to be in touch with. Right. Well, what was their age and what did they look like? And right. And then they would get the specs. Right. And then he had what you might call in today's language, a, a stock imagery. Right. He had images from all different types of people and ages and, and weight and height. And then those would be the ones, therefore, once you knew that, right, you would take the stock image and then you would slip it in in order to become the basis for this of the spirit. So essentially with the Mary Todd Lincoln photo and Abraham Lincoln, yeah. so he probably had a pose already done yeah. and then just yeah. superimposed his face yeah. on that pose, right? That's right. That's wow. right. Yeah. That, 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 that's, that's the thinking there. But we should probably talk about the Mary Todd Lincoln photo some more in depth because yes, I mean, after all, it is the most famous image and it's also an amazing story. Yeah, so let's talk about Mary Todd Lincoln and, and maybe some of the, his other clients that he had. So Charles Moore is a really interesting guy, right? Because he was a successful um, New York uh, banker. And also, you know, known for his abilities uh, to, you know, also uh, be involved in this in the stock exchange, right? And in, in the sort of rise of speculation in the New York stock market, right? He was right there, and he was very, very wealthy. But in his personal life, very sad story because his wife died young, 
right? And I believe her name was Estelle. And around 1860 or so, she passed. And he was very distraught, right? And he immediately got into spiritualism and started to attend seances, right? And he actually was involved with one of the Fox sisters, I think it was Katie, um, who he sat, uh, who sat for him countless times in the period to, that runs parallel to the Civil War. And these were very successful seances, right? And so again, we see the connection between uh, the seance world and the spirit photographic world. And so he was very pleased, right, that he could be back in touch with his deceased wife. And then the idea came up when Mumler, you know, moved to New York, right, in a, around 1868, that, you know, Livermore would be happy to sit for him uh, because he, again, felt that, OK, well, now let's get some visual proof. Right. And there are three known photographs that are discussed at the trial. One of them is extant. Right. One of them is in the collection of the, of the Getty Museum uh, and is published in my book that show us a photograph of a spirit behind uh, him, comforting him, perhaps even putting a wreath on his head. And, and Mumler, I mean, excuse me, and, and, and Livermore positively identified this spirit as his wife, Estelle. Now, what are you going to do in a situation like that? Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, you know, and Mumler like wanted like 10 bucks and Livermore was like, well, no, no, money's not the issue. I think, I think he paid Mumler like, you know, maybe like a hundred bucks, right? For, for these images. And so he testified and, you know, and the defense is like, whoa, I mean, you know, and so the prosecution is like, whoa, well, what are we going to do with this? Right. This well-known New York banker, you know, coming up to defend Mumler. And, you know, what, what do you see? You're going to say he's crazy. Right. So this is so this is the kind of dilemmas that were that were happening in terms of the, the those who were the satisfied customers of Mumler. Right. OK. Now, we want to talk about Mary Todd Lincoln, too. So should we get into that story now? I think I think it's important for people to know that Mary Todd Lincoln also performed seances at the White House. And why? And why? Do we know exactly why? My understanding is, is that because one of her sons, Willie, died in the White House in 1862. Yeah, that's and right. she was right. Right. And she was totally, you know, you know, depressed and 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 trying to figure out, well, how do I get comfort? And that's why she turned at that time to spiritualism. And that's why there were these infamous seances in the White House, right? <laughs> which, you know, which, which supposedly had the history because I, and I read somewhere that Nancy Reagan also had seances in the White House. Really? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Re, you can read up on that. So it's kind of a tradition, right? But it's, yeah. that's where it started, right? Okay. Um, yeah, so so then she became very interested in uh, spiritualism, and of course there was a there was so much death in her in her family. I mean, you know, and obviously the most catastrophic one was you know the, let's not forget she was sitting next to her husband right in Ford's Theater when Lincoln was assassinated. You can imagine what a traumatic experience that was, right? And how could she have ever gotten over this, right? So the question is always raised, when was and what were the circumstances for the production of the photograph of Mary Todd Lincoln with the ghost of, of, of President Lincoln? And, you know, I want to clear up on your show, on your podcast, because there's a lot of misinformation out there on the Web. Right. So let's set the record straight. OK, yeah. so 
So it did not happen right after, you know, the president was assassinated. No, that that is not the case. Some people believe that. No, that's not true. So the key is that it happened, and some say it happened in 1869. That's also false. It happened in the probably February of 1872, right? Now, now why? Why is it so late, right? Well, here's the key. The key is that there was another son, right, had, right, who was, I think, around 18 when he, which is, again, another very sad story, you know, prime of his, of his youth, when he died in 1871. So he died in July of 1871. And again, she was completely devastated, right? Another death in the family. And what is she going to do? So that's what prompted her to go visit William Mumler's new studio on, you can see it on the back of, of, the, of, the, of the card, right? Uh, which was, I, I believe, uh, I called on, it was either called Springfield Street or Springfield Avenue in Boston. And that's where she sat for Mumler in early 1872. And that's why, if you look closely, at that spirit photograph, you will see the very distinct face of Abraham Lincoln on the right side, but you also see another form on the left side but behind her, and that is presumably the ghost of Tad. Wow, that, I didn't know that. Yeah, look closely at the photograph and yeah. you'll see. I'm right? So again, what that's what but that's what's so fascinating because everybody remembers it of. This is the photograph where, you know, the, the president came back to comfort her because you see, right, his hands are behind her, you know, um, comforting her on, on her shoulders, like, you know, like basically kind of like saying, hang in there, you know, yeah. you know, I'm here to help you, to comfort you and, and you'll join me one day, right? That's all the messages that are there. But the reason is because he's comforting her about not only his own death, but the death of the recently deceased son tad i now i need to go look at it again all i yeah. ever see is abraham lincoln there and you're right he does that like comforting it'll be okay kind of pose yeah but i don't think i've ever seen her son in there yeah absolutely yeah it's but again it's very indistinct you can't really pick out a face there right so that's in one image you have the two things i was talking about you have the very identifiable uh, ghost, and then you have the very blurry, blobby ghost that you can read into it whatever you want, right? And if she was, of course, she of course is reading into it. Oh, that's Tad, yeah. right? That's the that's usually the norm, right? Is a very blurry with maybe some little itty bitty feature, like oh, there's a nose that has to be my wife. Right? <laughs> oh yeah, right. All right. I can recognize that nose anywhere. <laughs> So I think something really important with Mumler's story is that he actually did go on trial for fraud. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you okay. want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's, oh, it's a great trial. Let's let's talk about it. And, and again, right, it's sort of positioned between, right, the, the death of Abraham Lincoln and then the visit from Mary Todd in 1872, right? Mm -hmm. So Mumler decided to, with, with Hannah, to, to, to move and relocate and to set up shop in New York. And one of the reasons behind that is because there was some very, there was a scandal 
are a couple of scandals already happening in Boston where people were able to identify living sitters, right? Or, or living ghosts. Mm-hmm. Very bad. Bad PR. Very not, not good for business. Hey, that's Ted from down the street. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> so that was bad news. So Mumler had to then take set up shop in a fresh space, right? A fresh clientele. And that was in New York City. Okay. So at the beginning of 1869, Mumler was, you know, plying his wares and there was coverage in the newspapers already. And this was also, you have to understand the time of the great tabloid, like journalism wars for market share. So you had a lot of newspapers in New York, right? You had the New York Sun, the New York World, the New York Times, of course, which still remains, but the other ones are gone, right? So I think what happened was the Sun did a report on him that gave him good PR. And but they said, well, we can't decide yet whether this guy is a phony or whether he has discovered some new supernatural power. Right. And then it was at that time that the science editor of the New York world, who was a guy named Hickey, uh, Mr. Hickey, he got wind of the story and he's like, oh, no, no, this is bad news. Right. He was, you know, really on the side of science. And he wanted to expose, right, Mumler as a fraud. So, so he went there and then he wrote a story and then he reported Mumler uh, to the mayor's office. And they brought out this marshal named Tooker, Marshal Tooker, who went to sit for Mumler and, you know, did a kind of a incognito and did obviously didn't say I'm the marshal from the uh, police. No, he um, said, well, I'm a fellow who's, father-in-law just died recently. And would you please, I hear you have these magical powers and can you uh, bring him back for me? And I'm happy to pay you and so on. And then Mumler produced an image and said, well, here, this is, this is, this is it, right? This is your father-in-law. And Tooker said, no way in hell. That is not my father-in-law. By the way, my father-in-law is still alive. (laughs) And and boom, put the handcuffs on him (laughs) and basically charged Mumler with uh, two counts of fraud and larceny, right? Larceny and trick, right? And, And they put him into the tombs, which was, you know, not the nicest place to be. Uh, in terms of the one of the you know the jails in New York City at in Gotham uh, at the time, and and you know and they brought him to a trial in April and early May of 1869. Okay, and the judge was named Dowling, and as I said already, the prosecuting attorney was Elbridge Gary, and I think uh, I forgot his first name, but Townsend Townsend was his defense, and this became a very sensational trial. Right. And every day in the newspapers in New York, you had blow by blow coverage. You had basically the transcripts of the witnesses. Right. Because it was very colorful and very sensational. And also because, you know, it was more than just Mumler. Right. It was the idea that with Mumler's trial, spiritualism itself was on trial. Right. And spiritualism, you know, millions of people, right, in the United States at that time, or at least so spiritualism claimed, were interested or or devotees of the spiritualist movement. So it became a really big deal. And it even, you know, the most famous coverage was from Harper's, right? Harper's, 
great. Hummler was on the cover of Harper's Weekly, right? In early May of, a, of 1869. So that's the sort of to give you a, more of the a sense of the, you know, of the, what do you call it? The, the high visibility, right? And the, and the sensational coverage of Mumler's trial in 1869. And I think that is one of the reasons why P.T. Barnum was one of the, the clients maybe like Ted witnesses, witnesses 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 yeah he was yeah. one of the witnesses because yeah. it was sensational and at that Absolutely. time he was one of the biggest muckrakers in journalism at that time so do you want to talk about pt barnum and and what he said oh it's so fascinating it's so yeah the, the fact that pt barnum became the star witness right for yeah. the prosecution is just again it just added even more right sensation and scandal and and reasons why people got excited and all worked up about this trial. So we know that P.T. Barnum was the, you know, the greatest impresario of his era. And he really understood and really, you know, was really one of the founders of this idea of visual entertainments, right? And of things that stretch the imagination, right? Like, you know, the precursor of Ripley's Believe It or Not, right? Like, you know, giving us, you know, all of these exhibits, right, um, at his shows uh, where people would say, oh, yes, this is the this is the the person who's half, you know, the mermaid, right? The person who's half uh, fish and half human, right? And, you know, and, every, and it would test the beliefs. And that's why P.T. Barnum said, I know a humbug when I see one. I know a hoax when I see one because I'm the master. Right. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. And, and, and I'm, you know, and I'm a celebrity. Right. So again, the question then becomes like, well, well then what, well, excuse me, if you wanted to defend Mumbler, you would say, well, excuse me, then what's the difference between what Mumbler did and what P.T. Barnum did? And why is Mumbler on trial and not P.T. Barnum? Because he's a big liar. Right. So that, of course, also was, was part of an interesting issue that was raised at the trial. Right. But here's the thing. What P.T. Barnum said was, is that, you know, and, and I think part of it has to do with this relationship between the secular and the sacred, right? Because P.T. Barnum always said, I'm a secular kind of guy. I give people, you know, their money's worth for their entertainments. And I make no pretenses that what I'm doing is something that's supernatural. I make no pretenses that 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 religion is involved in anything I do. And for me, that is a crime. It's a crime the way in which Mumler is invoking, right, you know, the spirits and invoking religion in order to, to you know, to, to do, to pull off his scam, right? Yeah. And, and so that troubled him, right? That, and, and that was one. And then the other thing was that he really didn't like the way in which Mumler was taking advantage of people's grief, right, and capitalizing it on it and making money out of it. So it's kind of interesting because this is where it gets, again, everything gets kind of warped here because you could say that P.T. Barnum, actually the two, the two rationales for why he was so dead set on throwing Mumler into jail were actually ethical reasons, right? Because this is where it's, it's kind of a twist in the plot because it was like, I don't like the fact that, you know, when people are at their most vulnerable, right, when they're in grief and then you're taking advantage of them. And I don't like the fact that you're invoking God and you're invoking religion, you know, in order um, to do something which can be explained purely by mechanical 
means, right? And what um, Jennifer Manukin, a scholar who's worked on the Mumler case, calls mechanical illusionism, right? Like, again, like a magic trick, that everything can be explained um, via material, uh, mechanical uh, rationale for how uh, the result came about and that there's no reason to invoke the supernatural, right? So that's pretty much where where P.G. Barnum was coming from. Yeah, and that's just like in the future with Harry Houdini, how he at first was, you know, I, I'm going to do seances. If they can do it, I can do it. And then when his mom passed away, he realized that you shouldn't profit off of someone's grief, just like P.T. Barnum. And he spent like the rest of his life trying to debunk all these spiritualists that were doing harm to people. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are you are right on there. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. The guy who is the master of illusion, right? The greatest magician of his day and who really had problems with spiritualism after the death of his mother and became the great debunker, right? And and interestingly enough, and I don't know if you, you, you for your audience, if you go to the Library of Congress website, Houdini's papers are all there and uh, and a number of the images that he made. And when Houdini wanted to like P.T. Barnum, we didn't talk about this, you know, that Houdini also produced fake spirit photographs, right? In order to show how easy it was to do it. And, so good. and there's a series that he did where he's talking to Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Right? Right. So that's that's also very important to, to mention, right? That that um and, and I and I didn't I didn't mention this, but now it gives me a chance to double back. That one of the ways in which P.T. Barnum wanted to debunk Mumbler was he worked with a photographer named Abraham Bogardis, who was one of the leading New York photographers of the day. And they made a fake spirit photograph that they brought as evidence in the trial to show how easy it was to make fraudulent photographs where the ghost of Abraham Lincoln appears over the head of P.T. Barnum. And of course, when people make a joke and, you know, and say, Oh, maybe Mumler was sitting there at the trial and saying, wow, that's a great idea. You know, but, but Barnum, was like, I got to try that one day. Right. Yeah. So, so the story gets very entangled. I, I think leading with that court case, we can talk about what was the fate of Mumler? What happened? Did he get accused? Did he actually, was he guilty? Well, he was acquitted. And I know your audience has probably got their their jaws are dropping right now, right? Yeah. After what we've been saying here, and it's like, what? So I wanted to cite from my book again, because it's good to bring in the primary source, right? Mm -hmm. So Judge Dowling, you know, basically uh, had to acquit Mumler. And then the question is why, right? Or why? Because the point is that even though, right, the judge says, knew that Mumler is a fraud, right, in terms of these photographs, they weren't able to prove, the prosecution was not able to prove how he did it, right? And that's the key. It's like you can propose as many up to nine ways in which you think he did the trick, but if you can't prove exactly how he did the trick, you couldn't convict him. And that was the problem. So it's almost like it was a loophole, right? And so Judge Dowling, therefore, you know, I say here in my book, had no choice but to acquit Mumler and to 
acknowledge the force of the anti-evidentiary position. The anti-evidentiary position was this idea, right, that unless you could prove the evidence of how he did the trick, you couldn't convict him, right? And despite his moral qualms about his own decision, as he proclaimed in his verdict, quote, after a careful and thorough analysis of this interesting and, if I may say, extraordinary case, I have come to the conclusion that the prisoner should be discharged. I will state that, however, I may be morally convinced that there may have been trick and deception practiced by the prisoner. Yet, as I sit as a magistrate to determine from the evidence given by the witnesses, according to the law, I am compelled to decide the prosecution have failed to make out their complaint. So that's a very, you know, interesting twist here in the plot, you might say. And it enabled Mumler to go back into business and to basically say, I'm exonerated, right? <laughs> you, know, you know how it goes, right? I, I've been acquitted. What's your problem? So he goes right <laughs> back into business. And that's what allows him only a few years later to make his most famous photograph of Mary Todd Lincoln, of his most famous spirit photograph. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're just going to need a part two because we just are great at talking about this stuff. And I, I love talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us. We'll see you next time, everybody. Okay, thank you again. Then Again is a production of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Our podcast is edited by Andrews Gilles. Our digital and on-site programs are made possible by the Ada May Iyster Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.